Swivel. From Swivel Media and the Product Bus, this is The Bootstrap. I'm Scotty Allen. The Bootstrap is your source of news and resources all about building startups from scratch. And The Bootstrap is now coming to you twice a week. Our Thursday episodes will follow the format we've been using so far, with startup news and a discussion topic with a guest. But on Tuesdays, we'll be releasing what we're calling Bootstrap Bites. These episodes will be a bit more informal, and they're going to include our producer, Declan McGee, and from time to time, members of the Product Bus team to break down some key tips for founders from a product manager's viewpoint. To kick this off, producer Declan has put me in the hot seat. So if you've ever wondered how a Disney kid turned educator turned product manager became a startup coach, just keep listening. So Scotty, welcome to the bootstrap. Yeah, I get to find out what it's like on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, we get to pick your brain today. Oh boy. So, <laughs> in terms of a little introduction, I'm sure the majority of our Aussie audience might have noticed that you're potentially from across the pond. So, how did you uh, end up down here? Well, I always like to confess I am a recovering American. Mm. My mother was Canadian, if that helps. So, it's a bit of sincere. I grew up in outside of Chicago, in Illinois. I went to a performing arts high school. I had a lot of involvement in musical theater, show choir, the full glee experience. And I actually ended up, when I finished school, moving out to LA to work with an organization called The Young Americans and uh, also at Disneyland and did the full Disney kid experience, survived LA just. Then I moved into a a different group that was a multinational organization. And I met my future spouse through that who is an Australian. And so when we initially started talking about the possibility of sticking together long-term, she was very clear that she wasn't interested in living on a different continent from her family and i didn't have that problem <laughs> i was also i was also very young but it was an i guess an easy decision at the time and i've been here for a few decades now so n- absolutely no regrets but that was the it was the conditions of the marriage basically i got married in the states and then came here as a permanent resident sight unseen wow so you'd never you'd never been before no, sir. No, and this is pre-internet, pre a lot of things. And so it was it felt very far away at that point. International phone calls were incredibly expensive and we were students, so we didn't have that money. Probably the first first year, every time I talked to my mom, she cried. It felt so far away in a way that we don't have that sense of distance. We know geographically that there is distance, but we don't have that sense of distance in terms of immediacy of being able to connect. My friends from the state can FaceTime. It's surreal, but it was very different, very different back then. Mm. It, it feels like nowadays there's almost that illusion that we're 
so close to everybody. Like we're organizing an interview with someone now is in the UK and calling them. It's a, it's a strange thing to think that they're so far around. Yeah. My, my mom passed away a number of years ago and I had to just go over to the States and stay there for a while with my dad and sorting things out. And I remember then running a, like the morning stand up with my team. And it was so surreal because it was so not strange. Yeah. (laughs) So this is what we do every morning, except it was evening for me. And I was sitting in my childhood bedroom. But otherwise it was was exactly the same. Things have changed a lot in that sense. Yeah. And so in the early days of your career, sort of being here, what did that look like? What were you sort of doing? Well, so I, I was a drama and music kid mm. and I decided when we finished in the organization that we were working with to do a primary teaching degree. And I very much throughout all of that was focused on the arts, drama, English, the, you know, the literature side of thing and technology at that point, like we had a Mac Classic 2 that we bought through because my, my wife was also studying. And so we were so fortunate to be in Australia and be able to do that on hand. Right? Uh, if we'd been in the States, one of us wouldn't have a degree because what we, one would have had to work to support the other. And But we had this little Mac Classic 2 that we rented on a like student rental scheme to the university. I dropped it once, like standing on a wooden floor, and it was fine. Like, you know, just like different days, right? And uh, so we went through uni. And when I finished uni, I was very fortunate to get a, a teaching position in an independent school. And I went there with like, you know, I've got this music and drama background, really interested in literature, production. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's great. And then I arrived at my first school and was told, oh, by the way, you're the computer coordinator. And I was like, oh, amazing. Like, I can't say that I know a lot about them, but this was at the stage where there was a desktop in every classroom and they had just connected their computer in their library to dial up internet. And and believe it or not, this was not in black and white. It was full color. Not that, that long ago, right? So I took it on and I was like, oh, I don't know a lot. And they're like, oh, you're young. You'll be able to work it out. And it was so interesting, I think, coming at technology from not the point of view of, you know, look, I have become a complete nerd. But at that, at that point, it was really like, oh, how are we actually going to make this make sense and worthwhile in schools? Because... There is still, there's a big trap still today in learning with technology where we can forget that just because we're using some cool technology doesn't mean that it actually improves the quality of the learning experience. And so I went on a journey then through the next few years in my career of my next role was the promotions position and it was literally called computer coordinator at a bigger independent school and it was right at that stage where we were just starting to look at giving teachers laptops we had like a computer carousel like five four computers in every classroom trying to work out how to integrate that move away from computer labs and i ended up on a, a leadership 
path and I was deputy head in a couple of different independent schools. I was head of middle school, worked in very high fee paying schools and low fee paying schools. And one thing that I I realized fairly early on was that that kind of traditional career path of heading towards being a principal was not something that I wanted to do. I didn't think that I had the the temperament for it. I think I didn't have the patience or I guess tolerance really, because I the first couple of schools that I worked in were very progressive, young. We knew what we were doing and we we really believed we knew what we were doing. And so working with people that weren't there was not a strength of mine at the beginning. I went then to a very established, very expensive private school as a leader where things were very behind. And it was the best experience for me because I learned from that that you cannot just stand on the other side of a chasm and say to people, you should be here. Because most of them will look at it and go, I'm not going to do that. I'll get killed. And the ones that that do fall. You've got to work out how to build a bridge back to them. And that's a basic learning theory. You've got to start with like, what do you know? What's the next towards what we can teach you? We don't go to year one kids and start trying to teach them calculus because there's, there's building blocks along the way. And adults are exactly the same. So I was very fortunate at the end of my teaching career, I was asked to go and run a innovation project at a big private school here in Melbourne. And I was very transparent with them at that point that I was interested in doing that, but really on a pathway to looking at my options outside of schools, they were totally fine with that. So I was able to go do a really cool thing and also have a look at the landscape without feeling like I had to do it in a, a, a covert way. And that's when I started thinking about what might be next after education. Amazing. And how did you get into the sort of startup and product management space? So I initially went to an ed tech startup in a training manager role. They were a system that was in quite a number of schools across a few states. And they were at that scaling point where they'd gone from, like a lot of businesses do, when they start, either everyone's a developer or everyone's a lawyer or whatever the, and and so they'd hired one non-technical employee before me as a business development manager, but they were at that point where they couldn't manage the training requirements and they weren't quite sure where to go with how they scaled and so and that role very quickly turned from a training manager role into a product manager role because when I got out and started working with clients I was able to understand where some of their needs were some of the blockers in fully using the product or keeping the product were and so that was a real trial by fire because I certainly did not go into that with any understanding of product management. Yeah. It was more, I've got to take this on and educate myself as I go about that function and work as a non-technical leader in a technical company. Yeah. And that was quite interesting. And I remember once, I've never let this guy forget it either. We were in this convo about something and it was like, oh, I just need to kind of explain this, make sure you can understand it because you're the lowest common denominator in the room. 
<laughs> well, <laughs> that's a challenge of product management right? mm. is that you if if you are either you come from an engineering background and you really get the technical and have to learn the customer side or you yeah. come from the customer side and you have to learn enough of the technical to be able to lead and sniff out the bullshit so it's it's a balance and from there, I helped that organization grow massively, break into a new territory, and I set it on that, that scale path. And then it was time to find a new challenge. And I worked in another ed tech startup. And then I, I worked with a legal tech startup that was very interesting experience again, because that was something where most people were lawyers mm. doing other things. And I was the first product manager in that, which was a, a bigger scale up. So I was then introducing not just the like my role, but really the whole product management function within the organization. And that was interesting, challenging. I think by that stage, I had was at a point where I'm a lot more easygoing, the, the older me, yeah. in terms of you know, being able to just kind of understand building relationships and the importance of that over status or power. And so that was really, that was that journey as a product manager. I've had the opportunity in, in that role to work really closely with one of our partners who was on the pathway. I mean, I don't think they knew that at the time, but on the pathway to becoming a unicorn mm. and seeing what that looks like in the really early stages. And then seeing a company go from being completely privately held to investment to sale and all of the cultural changes that come with that. I think it's been about 10 years of a real crash education in mm. startups, bootstrapping, investment, where product sits and all of that, which of course I believe is right at the center. Mm. And and I just I think I found something that really suits my skill set because I know how to have empathy. I know how to understand the users. I know from those days of going into that school where it just felt like I've just stepped 60 years into the past Yeah. in, the, in terms of the, the teaching practice and working out I had, like how to get people to feel safe enough to move forward. And with product management and understanding users, a lot of understanding users is understanding people's appetite for risk and change. People will keep using stuff that they hate and that they know that they think is bad because that pain is less than the pain or the perceived pain of changing their way of doing things. Yeah. And so there's a lot of that psychology in product of how do we get our users or our prospective users to understand that the risk and the pain that's going to be involved in doing this new thing is actually going to be worth it. And that, to me, I find is a really, really interesting challenge, mm. which then now leads well to coaching vendors. Yeah. And uh, you mentioned as well the massive sort of changes that occur when investment comes along. And, and that does come up a lot throughout the episode. So things like that, I, I suppose the question is, what are some of the, like some of those key lessons that you took from that period of time engaging with startups in that way that you still bring into work today? Human nature is that the grass is always greener, mm. right? So you think 
when I, when I was in education and I started off in some lower fee paying schools and you look at the 40 grand a year places and think, oh, they must have it Charlie together. Mm. And then I went and worked there and I was like, oh, no, they don't. <laughs> like it, is, it has its own set of problems. And I think that we are impatient sometimes with what growth looks like in this space. And so one of the main things that I have learned through that experience is the importance of controlled growth. Because you can spend too much time planning for a growth that you don't have yet and miss your mark because you've overcapitalized. In the same sense, if you don't have an idea of how you're going to scale your offering, then when that comes, because it's something that on one level you cannot control. I've been in places where you hit a market that suddenly means that you go from a hundred to a thousand customers in a fairly short period of time. And if your operations aren't scalable, then in order to scale, you are going to end up spending a lot of money on headcount that you probably don't need to spend. So if you're doing so in the legal tech that I was talking about, that had been born out of a consult a legal consulting mm. practice really and it their identity was not software until that element started taking off and they developed an understanding that the way that software as a service is valued is different from professional services and so when i first arrived there as a product manager to help manage their software one of the co-founders was saying, we're not a software company. And I was standing in the background going, actually, you are, you are a software company. Um, Once the investor piece came around, because what happened was in order to grow, because their operations were very manual, they were, it was on a billable hours framework because that's how lawyers work. And those billable hours framework, not built to be efficient. Mm. They're built to, we literally have admin people whose job it was to copy and paste emails into documents in Dropbox mm. and that for like client files, et cetera. And when I asked about like, why we do that? And I thought, well, we build a client for that time. So that works when you're a lawyer and when you're, you've got clients that are used to that. When you move to then that B2B SaaS model, that doesn't work. They're trying to cut every corner. Mm. And so the pressure of not having those efficiencies already sorted before that growth happened meant that there was a hiring explosion that was not actually sustainable. Right. I guess to go back to part of your question in terms of what to invest, what is, how does it change things? Mm. It changes what is valued in right. a company. You, one thing that I think I was already old enough and experienced enough by the time I got there to never buy into, we're a family, we're all in this together yep. <laughs> piece, because I know you can't make your family members redundant. I would have fired my mom a long time ago if that was the case. <laughs> and it is business. And once that comes in and an investor comes in, they're not looking at the people and the emotional investment that they've made of blood, sweat, and tears to get this to where it is. Mm. They're like, why do you have this really expensive 
instead of managers, let's delete them. Yeah. And that is just the nature of the, the business. I really laugh every time I see due to unprecedented growth we're hiring, particularly when it's like at the start of the new financial year. Yeah. Because what it means is in order to balance the books at the end of the financial year, we cut 20% of our workforce and now we need to rehire. Like, <laughs> it's, you know, it is a, so I guess understanding that. And therefore, when we think about what we do now at the product bus, education that founders really need about what that pathway is actually like is something that I don't think that most people understand enough about if you go down that road, what it means, what you gain versus what you sacrifice is probably one of the things I, that I, I witnessed through that. Yeah. And so with the product bus, we talked about it a little bit, but I guess what kind of sets of those experiences led to the philosophy behind it and sort of why you started it up to begin with? In the, the flow of investment acquisition, et cetera, at the start of COVID, my team got cut loose from that business, which was not completely unsurprising. Right. We're so fortunate in Australia that that comes with a, a bit of a financial safety net alongside it. And so I had the opportunity for the first time to not have to immediately find another full-time gig. Right. And I, I felt like I, I didn't have it in me to go on that emotional journey again ultimately to build someone else's wealth. Right. Unless you're there right at the beginning. The majority of early stage startup, there was a lot of talk right from the beginning in that particular environment about equity that never happened. And when it did sell, no one besides the original shareholders benefited from that. Right. And so it's all good learning. So I was like, I don't want to do that again. Not that my goal is about massive accumulation of wealth. It's about looking after my family and being comfortable, but it mm. was more a case of, I'm just going to see for a while. And of course, what happened at the start of COVID when there were so many job cuts is that there was also a mountain of freelance work because they still needed people to get the job done. Yeah. So they took work off, you know, they took roles off the headcount book and turned them into contracts. Mm. And so initially I picked up a contract with, a global like multinational SaaS company doing customer experience, mm. learner design, learning design pieces, help them really understand their own product because they had pivoted from the original, what the product was originally written for. And some, there was some kind of funky hard coded stuff in the back of it that meant that the implementation and setup for the new model didn't make a lot of sense. And what we discovered initially, the role was let's help our customers understand how to set this up. When we started working, we were like, actually, the organization doesn't understand how to set this up. Yeah. <laughs> and so was meant to be customer training became pre-sales mm. and even like onboarding training. So it's a really, really great experience. And but again, after a number of months, I felt like even though I was getting paid a really, really nice rate as a contractor. I was getting stuck back into that nonstop when you work in a global business and you're in a Slack channel with people on multiple continents. It yeah. just means that when one person goes to bed, the next one wakes up and goes, ah, what's going on? Yeah. Um, so, but while that was happening, I had started Swizzle Media, which is 
our podcast agency and really to see what I could do in that space. And that was because a lot of product management is content. Mm. Developing content when you're customer facing, developing content to help new users, to help prospects, to help internal stakeholders understand your product. And through that, I had done quite a bit of animation, video, and podcasting Mm. as well. I wanted to see what that would look like. And so I got then through Swizzle into the startup community in Victoria. And again, this is COVID. So there was a lot of like easy to access online stuff, which is kind of dwindling post COVID, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. And through that, I actually picked up some early stage startup clients for Swivel. Mm. As I started working with them, I, I couldn't turn my product manager brain off. So I would have to kind of stop and go, wait, why, why are you doing this? What evidence do you have that this is actually going to work? All those things that I had not experienced firsthand, but could look at. Often as a product manager, you come in at a point where there's already an idea there. Yep. The analogy is you're the first one that has to tell people that the baby is ugly. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it can be quite challenging. And so I just saw how the founder, like early stage startup ecosystem in Australia, wasn't doing that sort of education for people because most of the activities, networks, events, etc., are put on by people who've got the money to do them, which is investors and VCs. And that's not their business. Their business business isn't teaching people mm. how to fish. They want to find the great ideas. And if they can see the value in it, then they'll do that work to help those founders validate and test. What I saw then were people that were in that ecosystem taking ideas or an MVP, adding more and more to it, waiting for something to mm. happen in the investment space that obviously wasn't going to happen. And what I started to think about was what could a like a virtual product manager service look like where this is what people really need. I put it in the desk drawer because I was like, well, I'm already building a business here. You don't try and do two. That's silly. Mm. And then one of the founders that I had been working with on some learning content and uh, learning experience the wheels of her startup really fell off on a technical level where I had kind of gotten a feel as I was reviewing what she had, that they had an amazing concept, amazing designs, beautiful mm. clickable Figma, but not an actual product. Right. And she wasn't technical. People were working for equity and she said, oh, no, the, my CTO is coding everything from scratch, warning sign. And I kind of got a feeling like, I don't know how real this actually is. And I don't know if you know. And so I didn't hear from her for a while. That came to a head. She came back and said, look, I'm so sorry I haven't gotten back to you. I'm going to have to put this on hold because my CTO has walked away and I don't even know what's there or where to get started. I feel pretty defeated. Wow. I'm not going to be able to do anything until... I find a new CTO and I sitting right here said, look, I've had this idea. I don't know what it is, mm. but this is what I do. And I think that if you try and find another CTO, you're going to be in the same boat as you are now Yeah, because you're not technical, which is totally fine, but you don't have the ability to assess 
plans and where things are up to. And that's what product managers do. What I don't see here is the plan or the scope that should of requirements that needs to come together before anyone starts developing. And I see in your UI, uh, because she had an amazing UI designer, things that are really pretty, but that there actually isn't a technical solution for. So dashboards and, and things that could be amazing, but they didn't know how they were powered. That was just a prototype, really. And she said, that is exactly what I need. Send me the invoice. I will pay it right now. <laughs> so that's validation. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's not that's not scalable validation, right? You've got to be mm. able to do that repeatedly. Mm. But we, we just kind of started and it evolved into a couple of other clients in that same space, really starting to see the need. And I had that luxury of having Twiddle, having other things happening to really start playing with it. And it's interesting, my side hustle, Product Bus, became my main hustle. Yeah. And now we're in the process of integrating Swivel into that. But I think part of what has happened is we've done been able to do that work and learning to really prove out a need and find ways to help people to do that that don't involve taking equity or leading people on a wild goose chase. Because unfortunately, mm. what a lot of the incubator, accelerator, VC-driven programs do Obviously, they cast a really wide net. Yeah, they want to look at as many things as possible. The reality, though, is that a very small percentage of those things get any real interest or investment. And the, I think one of the real downsides is that that it's very nice, mm. and so most people, you know, they can get mentoring, etc., but. They're not hearing from people some of the things that they probably need to hear yeah. about how workable their idea is or what a realistic step is. So they get a lot of like, oh, wow, that sounds amazing. Like if you can get some traction, come back and talk to us. And they take that as affirmation that they're completely on the right track. And so they keep going. Yeah, yeah. And as we talked about on other episodes, it's the same principles, but often it's just the scale of the examples of what an MVP really is and what you should spend on it, mm. where people they you know, will go away, get a developer, spend money they shouldn't be spending on something that they don't actually know if anyone really wants or will buy. buy. Mm. And that's where I see Pranapus is really filling that need because part of what we are trying to do is, particularly in the validation space, if somebody spends a bit of time and a bit of money with us on trying to validate an idea and realize that it's not a go, then they have saved themselves time, money, mm. heartache. And, but very rarely is it just a, yeah, no, this can't work. Often it is a, you know what, you've got a really, the North star of this is a really interesting idea, but actually let's look over here as the place where the people are that actually need that and will pay for it. And the more that you do to develop and polish that before you present it to anybody, the harder it is to make that pivot. And that's where I think product thinking really comes in and the driver of product bus. So in the process of running the product bus, what are some of the most common pitfalls or mistakes that you see founders making that you need to pick up on them, especially in those early stages? 
I'm trying to triage them to the most uh, common and one of the most dangerous mistakes is falling in love with your idea mm. before you've really tested it. Right. Because, like I said before, the more that you fall in love with something, the harder it is to let go of it. Yep. And not every idea is a winning business idea. So the one thing that I'm really enjoying about work that we're doing now, we do both ends. We do idea validation and then we do, okay, things haven't kind of gone the way that they should here. Yep. Where are we stuck? Let's get moving again. In those cases, very commonly, it is confirmation bias right. that where there is a belief of the viability of the product that isn't actually grounded in data and reality it's in feeling and i'm a, i'm a feelings person mm. but when it comes to these ideas the more that you are enthralled with your own idea the harder it is going to be for it to be successful right so i would say that that's number one i think the second one then is finding that balance between how much you build before you test to see whether or not you're on the right track. Right. So the And we've talked in a number of these episodes already about how the concept of a minimum viable product has kind of turned into a monster. Yeah. A minimum viable product is not the first completely usable, fully featured version of your product. Yeah. It is, it could be a piece of paper yeah. that you show people to say, would you pay for this mm. or not? And so I really love what Yaniv Bernstein said on our you know, Can You Bootstrap a Unicorn episode about going back to, let's just call it a prototype. Yeah. Because mm. we, we understand a prototype is it's a semi-working model to test and see, is this actually doable, workable? Mm. So not doing that testing. I think everybody that is in this game needs to go back and read the lean startup, Eric Reese, which is you know, the kind of beginnings of the agile movement. But the main takeaway from that, and I, it's something that I go back and I listen to the audiobook at least once a year, the first half, the second half, it gets more into the nitty gritty, but the first half of just the principles. And, and the main thing is like everything until you have proven out, that you have a repeatable business model, everything that you're doing is learning and testing. So it is not, I'm going to spend a hundred grand in three years to build the product exactly the way that I think it should be. And then I'm going to start showing it to people and see if they will like it or not. That always ends badly. Yeah, right. Because it becomes what you think it should be in your brain, you're then so invested in it that you cannot actually take the feedback that people are giving you. So you have to rationalize it like, oh, well, they just didn't really get it or something else. It's not definitely not the idea. Yeah. So yeah, those are, those are really, I think the main, the main pitfalls that are very common. And so we've talked quite a bit about like the do nots and the, areas that things can go wrong but i was wondering if there's anything that you're involved in at the moment in product bus that you can speak to that's 
looking particularly exciting. Yeah, I mean, I've got to speak in general terms, obviously, because of, of confidentiality. But yes, absolutely. I think that one of the things that I love, I guess at, at the starting point, it's really about whether or not people are coachable. Mm. It's not about whether what we say is right. It is, you've got to sift and sort and listen to other things and make your own decisions. Yeah. Sometimes people don't agree. That's fine. But if you're consistently getting that message from different people, you probably need to stop and think about it. So. In terms of, I guess, the exciting things that are happening in Product Bus, one is seeing founders go from despair to empowerment. Mm. Because often it can feel like they've just got a spaghetti monster that has you know, grown completely out of control. They don't yeah. know how to rein it back in. And I will always try and take them back to what was the North Star of this original idea? Yeah. Let's forget everything else that has been piled onto it and go right back to why did you want to do this in the first place? Mm -hmm. And if you can reignite that and help them rediscover that and then be prepared to let go of things that they've done a lot of work on in order to go back to achieving that. And I, I just had this conversation with one of our founders this week of we had a meeting where I said, you're, you're a founder, you're a leader now you're leading again. You're not in disempowered. Oh my gosh, this is, I don't know what to do mode. Yeah. You are in, I've got a direction and way forward and I'm taking control mode mm. now. That is so exciting. And I've had a number of people that have said, I feel empowered now. Mm. Part of that is being able to own the missteps yeah. that you think and forgive yourself for them, move on. So that as, as a coach and as a, a consultant is incredibly exciting. We're working on quite a number of really interesting, innovative products where we've, I think, proven out the value of a product manager or product leader in that piece. Because for some people it is, you've got the industry knowledge You've got a technical idea, and yes, you might know that industry really well and even know people in that industry, which means that you can get meetings no problem, but you've still got to be able to demonstrate the value of what you're doing to them in a really super practical way. Mm. And so helping people see that and then commit to growing because of that, incredibly exciting. One of the things that I'm... I absolutely love about what we are doing is that we have got such a wide range of industries that we are working with. Obviously, there's the EdTech, SaaS, you know, legal tech, et cetera. Mm. But we have a number of different two-sided marketplace ideas, which mm. marketplaces are always a alarm bell yeah. for me from a how do you commercialize perspective. Yeah. But ones where it's really if you can help them kind of find that niche. Mm. Very exciting. And so that and I think you know what you see is obviously I know the ones I can do strategy with anybody. Then there are certain areas where like I can go deep with them or one of our other consultants is the person that can go deep with them because when it gets into certain technical requirements or things that we have different skills. But I love doing strategy and having to understand things I know nothing about. Hmm. One of these one of these clients, when we first started trying to understand their idea, there was a bit of a wall of, oh, maybe you just don't understand the industry. Hmm. And it was like, some of that's true, but if you've spent this much time with us and we still don't get it, there's no way an investor is going to get it right. because you're going to get a, 
one hundredth of their attention compared mm. to what we've given you. So we've got to get it to that point where you can explain it to a layman where no one's going to be able to see the value in it. Yeah. And so those things where people are prepared to take to kind of go on that journey, we don't want to discourage people, mm. but we also don't want people to be spending time, money, investment on things that they shouldn't be doing. And so we are that kind of critical friend that will call it out. And that can be challenging sometimes, but you see the rewards of it when people actually do listen. It's not about doing exactly what I say. Yeah. It's about listening and being prepared to look at it more objectively and then come to a decision about what you're going to do based on data and fact rather mm. than your emotion. Yeah. The critical friend is a good one to have. Sometimes you don't want to hear what they say, but. <laughs> yeah. I've had an experience very recently where we gave that undertaking to somebody that was looking at using our services. Mm. And I will say very upfront to people, if I don't think that you should be spending money on this, I yeah. won't take it. Yeah, right. Mm. It do, and I'm, I'm not saying to you, I think you have a terrible idea. Yeah. I'm saying, I think that this is not a good investment for you right now. Mm. Right. Yeah. Because you need, you need to get some more mentoring and you shouldn't be spending money. Mm. And I've had to say that really explicitly a couple of times and it doesn't always go down well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm not saying you've got a bad idea. I'm not saying no. this can't mm. work. I'm saying that this needs a lot of work to, to get to a point where I would feel comfortable charging you for services because other, like I'm not going to come and charge you to, mow your lawn mm. if your house is on fire yeah right yeah and and so it's same deal but that that's part of the i guess an integrity thing right yeah so i mean we've managed to make already 10 plus episodes out of all these ideas but mm. if you could attempt to condense i guess the the philosophy and the point behind the bootstrap podcast what would you say? My wife will tell you I'm not very good at convincing <laughs> you. I'm always like, but this backstory, you've got to understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I think that what I want the bootstrap to achieve is to give people real practical advice that they feel that they can use right now, not aspirational success stories that just make it seem further away and less achievable. Mm. That was my experience when I, even though I'd been in quite a number of startups, I'd never been a founder. And when I started on that journey, there was not a lot of content there that felt like, oh yeah, I, I can do something about that right now. Mm. It was more like, okay, great. I'm really happy for you. I have no idea how to apply any of that to yeah. me mm. being successful. And we've had some really good feedback already that we are meeting that and giving people that, that help. The other thing, again, is not condensed. Yeah, well, it's for me. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is that as we grow and we bring other voices, because my goal is not for this to be me talking forever. Mm. As we bring other voices in to represent more underrepresented elements of the community, but also to just help people look at things more critically like you need Benson said know the game that you're playing yeah and understand why you you make the choices that you are making 
for your own best interest because at the end of the day, no one else can look out for them and, and no one else is looking out for them in the way that you need to be. And so the more I think that we can look a bit more agnostically or analytically at the ecosystem, look at some of the programs that are out there and try and understand the real efficacy mm. of them. Because I think for data-driven industry, when it comes to the efficacy of programs in this space, we're pretty light on it. Yeah. It's a lot of feel-good, you know, a lot of let's get a diverse group of people together so that it looks good on social media. Yep. But when you then look at, as we, you know, we've talked about in a number of episodes already, the practical application of that in terms of who gets funded. Yeah. It's not the same. Yeah, so right. People need to understand that. That's that's part of what this is all about. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Scotty, thank you very much for taking the time. And we hope to get you back on the podcast sometime soon. Look, I check with my people. Yep. yep. And I, I think you probably know them pretty well. Uh, sort and, of, you know. Yeah. See if you can sort out scheduling. I've heard he's a little bit of a... But like, he can, you know, he you, can you, be you, tight, but, you know. He can be tight, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if, if, he can, if he can wing it, I'm happy to be booked in again. Yep. Awesome. Thanks, Scotty. Thank you. And that's it for the bootstrap for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe or follow the show wherever you listen. And of course, we would love a positive rating and review to help others find the show. We now have our own LinkedIn page. Just search the bootstrap startups from scratch. And we're working on our social media presence. But for now, you can find the product bus on most platforms and interact with the bootstrap post there. We'd love to hear from you. The Bootstrap is a production of Swivel Media and the Product Bus. It was developed by me, Scotty Allen, and Declan McGee. This episode was edited by Sammy Perriman, sound design and mixed by Rob Clark. If you're an early stage founder looking for resources and practical help, check out theproductbus.com and get in touch. Swivel.